Our scripture reading today is going to be taken from the book of Mark, the book of Mark chapter 5. Uh, you can find that reading printed for you in your bulletin. So, Friday afternoon, I, I ordered on Amazon a Super Yard Color Play 8 panel play yard. Susan and I aren't expecting, to my knowledge. Uh, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't buy it for the kids. Uh, we didn't buy it for the dogs. Uh, but but in our nursery, as our nursery coordinators will be telling you, we have a wide range of ages. We've got some three or four year olds. We've got some that are just learning <clears throat> to crawl. And so sometimes those older ones are a little uh, rambunctious, and we want to protect the younger ones. So this is basically a play yard, and they can tell you how they're going to set it up, that we're going to set up in the nursery to kind of separate those two groups a little bit. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to try to isolate the younger ones from the, from the craziness that's often going on around them. The question I want, to, want us to think about this morning together is, what if we, in an attempt for ourselves to have a more controlled, tame, predictable, safe environment for ourselves, what if we're actually isolating ourselves from Jesus and the places where he delights to work? What if we've created something that we, where we feel like we're in control, but we've actually isolated ourselves from the places where Jesus is often at work? And so that's, that's what I simply want to think about this morning and ask ourselves, am I isolating myself the places that Jesus is at work. So look with me, Mark chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter then. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 
And he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Pray with me. <coughs> Father, these are, are, are your words. This is your scripture. Pray that you'd be willing to, uh, to speak through me to us now, and that we would be encouraged and challenged uh, and built up uh, and caused to think this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So basically, two points for us this morning. Christianity is a supernatural religion, and Christianity is for the broken. Christianity is a supernatural religion, and Christianity is for the broken. First of all, Christianity is a supernatural religion. Now, you may hear me say that, and you're saying, well, duh. Uh, it's about a, a Savior who is fully God and, and fully man, both at the same time, who died and rose from the dead. It's about a triune God who's one God in three persons. And how in the world does that work? Of course, it's supernatural. Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever secretly wish that the demon possession stories weren't in the Bible? Like, just, just maybe they weren't there. Not because they're scary, but because they seem so unscientific to today's mind. So not 21st century. Uh, we know, uh, we think that we know more than they do, and that they just were confused about demon possession, and the things they call demon possessions are really just various forms of illnesses that we understand better today. Uh, I found Tim Keller to be very helpful on this subject. He says, first of all, if you think it's at least possible that God exists, and most people do believe that. If you think it's at least possible that supernatural exists, why can't there also be supernatural evil? Why are we okay with the first, but we think the second sounds a little science fiction-y? Secondly, when you say, well, these people were primitive and they didn't understand illness like we do, you're actually misunderstanding the culture of the Bible. In Matthew 4, uh, various people were brought to Jesus, and we read that they brought to Jesus the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So they didn't just say, oh, that guy is demon-possessed anytime they saw anyone who was sick. They had categories for these things. They were ever able to differentiate among them. Now, I certainly think it's legitimate for us to ask, why don't we see demon-possessing that frequently in our culture today? And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it's at least worth repeating what C.S. Lewis said on this subject. He said, there are two equal and opposite eras into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both eras and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. In other words, they're happy if they can suck you into the occult, but they're also happy if you're satisfied with the materialist explanation of everything 
And so just kind of try to do life without God. So the, the first two points, if you believe in supernatural good, then why is supernatural evil so hard to believe in? And secondly, the people of the Bible did have categories for sickness and demon possession and all different types of, of illness. Thirdly, the existence of the supernatural is really the only way you can explain why seemingly decent people get caught up in systemic societal evil. Uh, during World War II, W.H. Auden was living in a German neighborhood in New York City, uh, and he went to see what was a, a Nazi propaganda film given the Nazi spin on why they had invaded Poland. <clears throat> he said he went to this movie whenever they would show Polish people, when Polish people would appear on the, on the screen, these folks living in New York, these Germans living in New York, would stand up and they would shake their fists and they would say, kill them. Kill them. And W.H. Auden couldn't understand that phenomena at, at all, and it actually caused him to lose faith in his atheism. What he saw happening in that theater caused him to lose faith in his atheism. Why? Because his atheism couldn't give him a satisfactory explanation of what he was seeing there. His atheism couldn't explain why these relatively decent people would get sucked up into this systemic evil. And he knew that in any event, even in any event, if his atheism were true, and that we are all simply products of time and chance and evolution and the strong just kill the weak, and that's what was happening in Germany. The strong were killing the weak, and he had no grounds to object to what was happening there. He couldn't say that's wrong because that was just a part of nature and yet he knew there was something wrong there, something evil even. And how do you explain that evil if there's no supernatural? It's interesting in this passage that the herdsmen fled when this happened, uh, when this exorcism happened. And the people who heard about it were afraid, and they asked Jesus to leave. And uh, one of the reasons may be that they were beginning to realize that the presence of Jesus was going to cost them something. He just cost them uh, 2,000 head of pigs, and that having Jesus around can be very costly. But it may have been also the case that they were just simply terrified of what they had just seen. Uh, you know, I, a bunch of demons going into pigs, screaming, going down the, the hill and drowning. I mean, I, yeah, I would be scared. I imagine we would all be scared. And seeing this person, Jesus, who has power over all of this, we might not want him around either. And so they ask Jesus to leave. They're, they, are, they are terrified because they've got this up-close view of the supernatural. And it's too much for us. Now, I don't know if that's really the case for us today. I don't know that we are afraid so much of the supernatural, but I think what's happened is that our culture's skepticism about the supernatural has kind of leached into the church, 
and and so think about it like this: our our culture is, is skeptical. Our culture tends to ignore the supernatural and explain everything away by materialist causes. And so what happens is we become skeptical. We don't want to admit it in church, but we become skeptical, and we begin to try everything, try to explain everything by materialist causes. I mean, why do we, kind of as Reformed Presbyterian Christians, why do we object to some of the things that we see in charismatic churches? Now, some of it is legitimate theological concerns. We have theological objections. But the other thing that maybe some of our objections are simply smokescreens for the fact that we're a little embarrassed by our less sophisticated charismatic brothers and sisters. But that's just a little bit too supernatural, and that's just a little bit too crazy. And even if we are, at the end of the day, we find out that we have been more theologically accurate, isn't it true that sometimes we can value theological accuracy at the same time we're very far from Jesus? And that the people we think are not being very theologically accurate are in love with Jesus Christ. And we can see that in their hearts and in their lives. Uh, we have a, a friend who's a member of the a big, big steeple, traditional church, uh, one you would think of as very conservative and high church, and yet it's got this charismatic bent to it. At the end of the service, which would seem very much like ours, somebody will come up and say, well, our prayer team has been praying, and there's somebody here with a bad knee and somebody here with a, a bad iris that God wants to anoint, and I just kind of sit there, and I'm just rolling my eyes. Like, what are y'all you, you talking about? But then, if you were to know the people in that church, uh, you would know that Jesus is at work there, and that, and that lives are being changed there, and that there's a warmth and a vitality that often we don't see in the midst of our theological precision. Well, let's, let's get away from that for a minute, because that's kind of uncomfortable for all of us. But let, let's talk about something that might be more uncomfortable, because it actually involves us and that's the subject of prayer. The subject of prayer. We all would say prayer matters. Right? If I, if I took a survey. How many people think prayer matters? We would all raise our hands. But isn't it true that we also all have trouble spending much time in prayer? Like if I came and asked you, I don't know, there might be two people that would say, I'm doing a good job with, with my prayer life. I'm praying as much as I want to be. But the rest of us are just like, uh, we, we, we just kind of, feel defeated about that. Why is that? Why is that? If we really think it matters and it makes a difference, why is it so hard for us? Uh, Doug Kelly in his book, If God Already Knows Why Pray, says, our culture disposes us to put man first and then either to deny God or at the very least relegate him to a, an inferior unimportant status are to be a last resort. If things get bad enough, we'll pray. At his next to last concert, um, Prince, who everybody had heard rumors that he had been in bad health, he said, wait a few days before you waste your prayers. 
wait a few days before you wake your prayers. In other words, almost like he's saying, it's not really that bad. You don't need to pray yet. And I don't know that he's really going to answer anyway. Uh, Doug Kelly writes, when, when we think only in terms of what we see and understand, we lack categories that recognize the supernatural and thus miss some of the answers to our prayers. Uh, a few years back, <clears throat> I was putting the flags up out front. And uh, they're the, the, the blue waving flags, the banners out front. And the way those work is there's a, like a stake about this long that you put that stake in the ground and then you put that flagpole into the stake. Okay? Well, it gets to be kind of a pain. The ground gets kind of hard out there to drive that stake into the ground through the summer months. And so what uh, Will Miller, who, they've moved now, but he made us these little metal tubes, and we drove those tubes into the ground. And so all you have to do now to put the flags up is to take the stake and go find that metal hole and drop the stake in it, and then you put your flag up. So it takes a lot of the work out of it. The problem is that dirt out there can tend to, to fill in those holes and the grass clippings can tend to fill in those holes. Uh, the other thing that happens is if it's raining a lot, that Bermuda grass really gets to grow it. And so you can walk out, and even though I know it's just three steps this way and then it's a couple steps this way, you, you can't find them. You can, you can spend 20 minutes out there and you couldn't find things. And so one day it was hot and I needed to be in here getting ready for my sermon and I had spent way too much time trying to find a holes and drop the stake in. And I just started praying about it. And it seemed like a silly thing to pray about. And I said, all right, I'm going to try one last time. And I didn't count it off or anything. I just randomly walked. And I dropped the stake, and it went into a hole in the ground. Like that. I couldn't see the hole. I just dropped it, and the stake went in to the ground. Now, I almost, I almost didn't tell that story. Because I know that some of you, maybe a lot of you right now, are rolling your eyes in your head. You're trying not to do it where I can see you. But, 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 but internally, you just kind of like, well, yeah, that, that would have happened. That was just luck. That would have happened anyway. And that's why you don't get good parking places. <laughs> because, because you don't pray for ordinary things. Um, Paul Miller's wife talks about that. She prays for parking places, and somebody's like, why would you pray for parking places? She's like, why wouldn't I? There's no other way to get a good one. That's how I get good parking places. See, this, this, this anti-supernatural bit of our culture has crept into the church, and so we think, oh, that's just kind of silly to pray about ordinary, everyday stuff. Much less big kingdom Things. Prayer for revival, prayer for conversion. Uh, pray, pray for our own growth. We're skeptical that it will make any difference anyway. And besides, we feel like we're handling life pretty well on our own. And it's not like we're exactly like those people. We're not asking Jesus to leave because we're afraid. We're just acting like we don't need Jesus around. And maybe that's why he doesn't come around. 
Maybe that's why we don't see him at work like we could. Maybe that's why we don't see the more progress in our fight with sin. Maybe that's why we don't see more people coming to know Christ. Maybe that's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And you can go look that one up. That's Second Peter. I'm not going to say any more about that. But because we have we have we have bought this humanistic lie, this humanistic lie that prayer doesn't matter, that the Spirit isn't at work, that God doesn't move in any extraordinary ways. And so what we've done is we've we fenced ourselves in in the playpen where we feel like we're in control and comfortable with God to work out here, outside of our safety. Now, Christianity is supernatural. Secondly, Christianity is for the broken. Now, here's what the text tells us about the demon-possessed man. Uh, verse 3 says that he lived among the tombs, that no one could bind him any longer. They'd given up on him. Uh, we're told he's uncontrollable. Verse 5, he spent his time crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, think about this guy. I I'm sure he, he hates his life. He's isolated. Uh, he's self-destructive. He's out of control. I mean, does, does anybody ever want to say me too? Not that we're all demon-possessed. We may not be demon-possessed, but, but how many of us still out of control. We can't sleep. We can't, we can't shut our brains off. Maybe we're, we're cutting ourselves. Uh, maybe we're, we're alternating from, from, from deep sadness uh, to, to great unexplainable anger. Maybe we're, we're starving ourselves. Maybe we, we look like we're okay, because that's what we're trained to do on the outside, but on the inside we're, we're as tormented as this guy in the passage. And Jesus, you remember what came before this, Jesus gets into a boat, sails through the perfect storm, and confronts this incredible hulk of a demon to rescue this man. To rescue this man. He, he came for this broken man. He came to rescue a broken man. Christianity is for the broken. And so, if you recognize something, even just a little bit of yourself in this man, maybe you're isolated or sick or confused, self-destructive, then be glad because you're the kind of person that Jesus Christ has actually come to rescue. He's come for people just like yourself. So don't let your brokenness keep you away from Jesus. Let your brokenness be the thing that propels you to come to Jesus because he's come for you. The problem is, I think for us, is that just like we're allergic a little bit to the supernatural, we're also allergic to admitting our brokenness. So maybe a, a better way to put that would be that we're in denial about it a little bit. Uh, we live in a place where you're supposed to be fine and you have to be doing fine and where we're supposed to be put together and we're supposed to have all made the right life choices. I mean, we're, we're Christians, right? We can't be addicted and lonely and afraid and 
hurting and self-destructive assembly. And so we can't own our own brokenness and we, we hide it and we can't find healing. I want to encourage you today that, that Jesus has come for broken people and that Jesus loves broken people. And, and if, you're, if you're, you're feeling any of that brokenness, then don't feel the need to hide that but bring that to life. Come, come talk to me about it. Are you up there? Talk to, talk to David about that. Find, find somebody in the body of Christ who can talk to you about that and point you to Jesus where you can find healing, where you can find one who loves you in the midst of your brokenness. See, when we conceal our brokenness, we're putting ourselves in that pen. And we're cutting ourselves off from the places where Jesus delights to work. We're allergic to the to the brokenness within us, but we're also allergic to the brokenness around us. Now, if you've ever seen the, the television series The Wire, one of my favorite characters on, on there is this guy named Bubbles, uh, and and Bubbles is a is a drug addict. He's a junkie. Uh, he lives on the streets. He's homeless, but he goes around every day and he puts his little grocery cart around. And I don't know where he gets everything. I guess he steals it or pe- I don't know how he gets it. But he's got a, a grocery cart full of items that he sells to all the other down and out people in that neighborhood. And he just pushes it around every day, and that's how he kind of survives, makes enough to get by. The problem is that there's one guy that decides that he's going to beat up Bubbles. And so every time he sees him, he just attacks him and takes everything and leaves, you know, bubbles just laying there on the ground. And so he finally gets fed up with it, and he's a snitch occasionally for the police. So he goes and he tells the police, I'll help you out with this if you'll send somebody to take, take care of this guy that keeps beating me up. And so he helps them out, but they don't send anybody, and he just gets beat up worse. And so he finally decides, I've got to take matters into my own hands. And so he learns how to make some poison, and he spikes some drugs, and he's got it in his jacket, and he's thinking, the next time this guy beats me up, he's going to steal my drugs, he's going to take this poison, and he's going to die. What happens instead is, is that Bubbles has taken in this homeless teenager who he cares very much for, and they're, they're, they're living together in this little shack, and while Bubbles is sleeping that night, the homeless teenager goes, and he takes the poison drug, and he dies. And Bubbles is distraught, and he goes to the police, he confesses, uh, and, and they're just kind of looking at him like, oh, we don't know what to do with you, he's going through withdrawals, and so while the police are out of the room, he tries to hang himself. Uh, and they, they rescue him, and they send him to counseling, but he's just this broken man in every way, and, and he's just who comes to mind to me when I think of the demoniac, he said he's not angry. It's just, it's just complete and utter brokenness. And we don't want to get close to that. We don't want to get close to that at all. We don't want to, we don't, we don't want to acknowledge that in ourselves, and we don't want to get close to that in other people. But what if it's in those broken places and broken people? What if those are the places where Jesus is actually at work? And we're, we're missing it because we're in the pen, and we're over here safe in the protection and comfort of the beautiful lives 
that we've built for ourselves, that we've constructed in an attempt to hide our own brokenness and to keep the brokenness around us away. Uh, there's, a, there's a pastor in town that, that Jim O'Donnell and I know, and he'll uh, invite you to his church, but he'll warn you, you need to be ready because we got a bunch of drug addicts and we got prostitutes, and you're going to see some things here that are going to make you really uncomfortable. If you come and you just need to be, you've got to have your game face on, you need to be ready for this. Why does he feel the need to tell us that? Why does he think that's going to freak us out? Because we're the type of Christians that keep our brokenness covered up and keep their brokenness away. But again, what if in avoiding that brokenness, we're actually missing out on the places where Jesus is at work? We're in this playpen. We're safe. We feel safe. But we're missing out on the action. We're missing out on what Jesus is doing in the world around us. Well, how do I try to change that? Uh, how do I become a person who's more willing to sort of own the brokenness, more willing to... to, to, to venture into, be a part of other people's brokenness. I think it starts with seeing that Jesus came through the storm and into the graveyard for me. That I was that valuable to him. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm fallen. And yet Jesus pursued me. Jesus came after me. Jesus came into my brokenness and did what was needed to do to rescue me. He went to the cross for me. He showed me mercy. And now he's in the process of restoring me to my right mind. And that's where the guy winds up here at the end, right? He's clothed. He had been naked. But now he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And Jesus doesn't do that instantly in all of our lives. But that's the work he's doing in our lives. He's actually making us human again. And if we can see that and, and grasp his love and mercy to us, that is what begins to enable us to move in mercy towards others. Uh, it, at the end of the movie, not Captain America, I give it away, but at the end of the movie, True Grit, which was originally released in 1972, so you have no excuse um, if I give something away, but, but Maddie Ross is in a pit um, like 30 feet down in the ground that's filled with rattlesnakes that you can't get out. And so, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he comes down to get her. In the original, it's, it's John Wayne, and the one that was like five years ago, it's the dude who's playing the John Wayne character, which is funny if you think about it, uh, Jeff Bridges. But, 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 but the dude repels down into the pit to rescue Maddie Ross. And as he's repelling down, he gets bit by the snake, and so he does, you know, what they do in Westerns, and he cuts the thing, he sucks the poison, and he spits it out, and then he repel, he climbs out of the thing. Well, he's not done. He saved her, but he's still got to get her home. He's got to get her to, to a doctor, and so he rides through the night, and he's going, and he's going, and he's going, and he gets tired and tired, 
he finally collapsed and he fires his gun outside a house and somebody comes and takes care of Maddie Ross. You see, you and I were in that pit. And Jesus came down to that pit. And he rescued us. And now our, our entire lives, he's, he's, he's riding the horse. He's carrying us to wellness, to restore us. And it's a process. But he showed mercy, shown mercy to us, not just in that initial act of salvation when he pulled us out of the pit, but that all through our sanctification, he's saving us and restoring us and making us human again. And if you can see that, if you can see that, uh, then you will be able to do this. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we confess our materialism and our skepticism and our doubt and our prayerlessness. We confess that it's, it's real hard to, to open up about our brokenness. Um, and it's real hard to move towards other people and their brokenness. So we pray for your enabling grace that we might do that because we know that's where we're going to find healing. We know that's where we're going to see you work. So, God, I pray that you would just bring people into, you know, maybe there's folks here today that there's something they want to talk about, but they're afraid to talk about. Uh, I pray that you would create relationships in this church that are safe places uh, for people to admit their brokenness uh, and to find healing in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.